Arteta! What a taken us 249 episodes, but we've finally come up with some quality content. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. It is our special 250th episode edition, and we are so thankful to have you here, so thankful that you've stuck with us through the era of dodgy audio and uneven debate and unreliable internet all the way up until now when we have dodgy audio, unreliable internet, not even debate. So thanks for that. I want to thank everyone who has signed up on our Patreon and supports the podcast that way. It means the world to us, uh, as well as those of you who don't uh, and just listen to the regular podcast. That means the world to us too. And we love you all. And we are so appreciative of that. So without further ado, let me tell you what's coming up. Down the line, we have Clive and Paul. Tim and Scott couldn't make it here, but in some ways, not being able to have everybody on is the best way to celebrate 250 episodes of this. But we also have James and Andrew Arsblog, Gunner Blog and Arsblog from the Arscast Extra on for you. That's down the line just a little bit as well. But first up is Amy Lawrence. Uh, She is someone who you probably know better than you know myself or anyone else on this panel. We are thrilled that she joined us, and we're going to lead off with that. So without further ado, let's get started with this special 250th episode. It is now my great pleasure to introduce to you someone you already know and likely know better than myself, but that is Amy Lawrence. You can find her on Twitter at amylawrence71. She's the producer of the fabulous film 89. She's the writer of the fabulous book Invincible. You can read her great writing in places like The Guardian and The Observer and elsewhere. And Amy, it is an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Uh, Fantastic to speak to you too. Hi, Elliot. Hello. So uh, let's start with something that you recently wrote about, and that is the new leadership structure at the club. Uh, Ivan Gazidis, after strutting around and putting himself front and center at the the uh, introduction of Unai Emery at the club, left. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that probably came as a shock to a lot of supporters. I'm not sure how much of a shock it was within the club, although I expect it was something of a surprise. But that has led to the um, increased responsibilities for Vinay and Raul, and you got the chance to sit down and speak to them about their new responsibilities, about their relationship with the Cronkies and the ambitions of the club. So I think first and foremost, how impressed were you with uh, the job they're doing and the ambitions the club have set out for them? Um, just before I start, uh, I'm going to throw something at you, which is to say congratulations on 250 episodes. Um, That's too kind. You can imagine <laughs> it takes uh, uh, a lot of dedication to do something like this just off your own back and reflects something I think that's important. That's uh, re- very much shows how the club has changed over these last uh, couple of decades in terms of its internationalism. Hmm. Um, when I first started supporting, uh, well, when I first started watching Arsenal, um, you didn't. You, you could travel the world and meet someone and start chatting, and they'd say, "Where are you from?" And you'd say, "London." They go, "Whereabouts?" And you go, "Arsenal," and there'd be a bit of a blank face, and people didn't, you know, didn't. It, know as much as they did today and and uh i think it's a, an incredible thing that people from all over the planet get up at strange times and spend probably far too much of their working lives scouring the internet for news or clips or highlights or whatever's going on the same as if you live 10 seconds away from uh, from Highbury. So anyway, I digress. Um, no, well, I, I want to say I appreciate it. And I'll tell you this. They give you one invincible season. And the next thing you know, you're cheering on Nicholas Bentner on the wing for a few seasons. So, you know, you know. That, that, That's the reality of, of uh, <laughs> losing your heart to a football club. You, exactly. You, know, you don't know, you know, if you're going to 
I often think about the the old school Manchester City fans who had to have this almost self-loathing that was part of what, what went with with their the, their territory for so many years when when Manchester United were so dominant and they were around the corner and they just used to be famous for cityitis and having a glimmer of something and then blowing it and and now look so and equally you look at a team like Leeds United kind of beginning to climb again under Bielsa but they were in the, you know they, they were a huge club in England they were massively important huge crowds at Ellen Road was a great place to be as a buzz uh, they they were in the Champions League that it was you know they were chasing the dream and then they spent years in the wilderness so you, you sign up for a club and you've got to take whatever comes your way. <laughs> for better or for worse. I've, I've made that commitment on one other area of my life and I'm sticking with it. <laughs> right. Very good. Um, anyway, so your, your initial question about Raul and Vinay. Well, I think there are two main things that I found striking uh, being able to meet them and have a conversation with them that was something that you felt was a difference in terms of their approach and ideology compared to Ivan Gazidis. They made a big show and they will continue to say the self-sustaining model that has been the case uh, pretty much from the day Arsenal left the ancestral home of Highbury and went to the Emirates for this brave new world um, was self-sustaining. That was the plan. That's still the plan. And that's the plan going forward. Um, with Stan Kroenke taking his full ownership of shares, it was evidently unlikely to be a big shift in that idea. But where there are subtle differences is in the way that Ivan presented himself and went about his business and in the way that these guys do. And one thing that's quite clear is that they're very eager to present a much more open, much more sort of personable um, public face. So they want to almost give the impression of re-engaging with the fan base because there had become, I think, a bit of distance and that distance was exacerbated by the small shareholders who found themselves bought out and no more AGMs and this idea that Stan can can uh, take a, a, a little bit of transparency away from, from the fan base. Um, and they are really... Uh, they, they 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 seem like really uh, nice guys to be around, and I think that the way they are around the club on a day to day basis, they want to talk to people, they want to be out there. They're not kind of hiding away in an office and dealing with suit stuff. Um, and Ivan did feel like more of a behind the scenes guy. Uh, he used to be more away in his office doing his stuff and not integrating so openly with people. For example, Raúl. Um, I think spends a lot of time wheeling and dealing and almost in some ways reminds me of the the way that David Dean in the old days of, of David Dean and Arsene Wenger had that kind of finger on the pulse of people in football. He could walk into any room in the football world, know people, know people who knows people, chat to people with this kind of smiley uh, way and get on with people. And I think Ivan's a bit more reserved than that. So, um, and, and, and Vinay has kept his office that he's had for years, which is out in the kind of more open plan sector of the um, Highbury house, where he could have gone and shut himself away and taken a, a, you know, a big boy's office upstairs where your, your 
disconnected a bit from the people who are working in, in various other departments on a day to day basis. But he's chosen not to. So I think that gives you an indication of the way that they're trying to be a little bit more open uh, and a bit more inclusive in the way that they want to portray the image of the club. Yeah, that's encouraging. And certainly uh, hearing that about Raul is encouraging as well. It's a long, long way from the days of Dick Law chasing Joel Campbell around Costa Rica for two months in the summer. Um, I think he had a good time. I'm sure sure he did. I I would have taken that job for free. Um, I I think that there are going to be people who are naturally suspicious of Kroenke, especially in light of the, the full takeover. And so you know, I'm curious whether they feel, and I'm sure they kind of had to express this, but you can get a sense of the extent to which people are being totally uh, transparent with you. The extent to which they feel that they have the backing of Kroenke, you sort of teased us a little bit in your article with the suggestion that if they spotted something really exciting that they wanted to do and it wasn't within the self-sustaining model that maybe Kroenke would kind of sort of possibly be willing to back them. I mean, do you get the sense that that is bluster and PR for Kroenke, or do they seem to give off the impression that they really believe Kroenke's ambition matches the supporters? They answered that very carefully. And that to me was, a, a um, it, I think it was the last question. So, you know, we've, we'd all been chatting away for, for a good hour or something, covering a lot of ground. But You've got to start with the bourbon, then you get the answers you want. <laughs> it was something that was nagging away where, you know, in, in, in on, on one hand, they they preach the self-sustaining model and that's absolute and that's an incontrovertible way that they want to do business. On the other hand, they say with great conviction and belief, although obviously you've got to, you know, it's all very well talking the talk, you've got to walk the walk. We, you know, they're, they're adamant that Arsenal can be successful again in this model. And by being successful, that means making a big hit impression in the Premier League and Champions League. And while all this is going on, you're kind of sitting there thinking, how can you reconcile these two things? You know, it's a really nice idea that you can be self-sustaining and you can go and blow Man City or Paris Saint-Germain or Juventus or Real Madrid or whoever out the water. But you're that, you know, that bit of reality in all of us makes you think, I like the idea, but I mean, I'm it's finding it quite difficult to believe this stuff, uh, that it can really happen. Yeah, which is why I thought it was an interesting part of the debate because, for example, you know, a, a, a player suddenly a, arrives on the radar who's whatever sixteen, fifteen years old, and it's you know it's the new Messi, and for whatever reason, someone knows, someone knows, someone, and you think we can get him, but he's going to be big bucks. Would we do it? And that's the, you know, that I think is a, is an interesting thing, and and. And they couldn't really give an answer other than to say, look, we, we would go and approach them. But they were in no way in a position to turn around and say, well, the, you know, Stan and Josh will we'll go with what we say and will encourage us to take risks. Because I don't think that that's really the idea. However, they certainly were trying to portray the idea that, yes, we'll go and talk to them. We're not afraid to take anything we believe to them and they will listen. They might not get the answer. Yeah, but <laughs> they'll at least have the conversation. Yeah, when they when they hit him on the WhatsApp group asking for eighty million for the next Messi, they just get the new phone. Who this? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think I, look, it is certainly an encouraging start to this season, and I think that there was some evidence that we're willing to push the boat out, at least in the way we handled our striker business in the last two windows, for better and potentially a little bit for worse. 
this is one of those things that while we'd all love to know the answers up front, we're eventually going to get them, but it's going to take time. And certainly when you have a club like Manchester City that is really just the extension of soft power from a kingdom in the Middle East that wants to uh, enhance its global reputation and launder some of its reputation, it's hard to keep up with that. And then you put a manager like Pep Guardiola there and I don't think anybody's expectation is a title, but certainly it should be within our reach, given the resources we have to get to the top four. And the man who's tasked with doing that is Unai Emery. Now, you are obviously a big J journalist, but you're also a big S supporter. And so switching over to your supporter hat, how enjoyable has it been for you to watch Arsenal under Emery this season? I mean, I'm sure you adored Arsene Wenger, as I did myself, but it certainly felt like it was time to move on. And everything feels new and, and interesting in some ways. But what have been some of the most enjoyable parts of Emery's approach for you? That's a really good question. Um, I think that it sounds idiotic, but just <laughs> the proactiveness on match day was something that felt like fresh and needed. So hauling off a player at half time or, you know, five or ten minutes into the second half or changing tactically from one formation to another in the middle of a game. Um, not that Arsene never did this stuff, but it was scarce. And you got the feeling that Unai Emery at least wanted to come in and not just make changes and try new stuff, but also, and this was important, to try to chip away at the sense of complacency that had been allowed to um, build over the years. Because things had been samey for so long, so it's understandable if if people fall into some kind of a comfort zone or expectancy that, well, if so-and-so is fit, they're going to play. And um, suddenly that's been shuffled around and that's a good thing. Uh, so take as much from that kind of um, overall vibe than I do any particular individual aspects concerning this player or that player um, or a style of play. Yeah, no. Um, I, you know, I, also, I, I was just going to say really quickly, just to to um, amplify what you're saying, is that you have to retrain your mind, right? Because I find myself going, he's playing first team players in the Europa League. What's he thinking? You know, because Arsene Wenger never did that, but that doesn't mean that's the only way to approach rotation and fitness. So you, you have to remind yourself that Arsene's way was one way, and that, that another way may be as good or better. Yeah, but the you know the thing about the the Europa League and and I shared that sense of surprise when suddenly you've got major players uh, taking the you know the long journey to um, uh, to Carabag for example. Um, but I also think there was a real logic in this particular group. And when you examine the um, the logistical realities of this group, and you see that that. After match day five, which is the worst journey away to Vorskopoltova, where I mean, I, I'm not sure if they have to do the last few miles by goat or something. I, I joke, <laughs> but it is a horrible journey. It's a it's a five or six hour or whatever, but plane ride, and then they've got to do another three three hours or so uh, uh, by road. Um, and then who do you play on the Sunday? Tottenham. Hmm. So I think there was a logic and a bit of full planning there that said, let's get this group nailed. Let's try our our absolute best to sort the Europa League out, get qualification done and deal with um, that Vauxhall game, which is the most logistically demanding by, uh, look, he really surprised me if he takes a strong team out there. Let's put it that way. In in all um, reasonableness, he's going to take a a less experienced team out to that game. And then if you do still need some points to try and wrap up top spot, you can try and do that in in the final 
home game against Carabag, which shouldn't be too demanding, whoever's um, being picked. So I think there's a good logic there. And even though it felt very different, it was it's quite refreshing because instead of kind of shuffling right the way through the group stage and kind of getting just about getting through, it's getting business done first and then relaxing. Yeah, I mean, the flip side of that, of course, is you watch what happened to Danny Welbeck, which is heartbreaking, and you see Licksteiner pull up with a hamstring injury, and there is a tendency to want to say these guys shouldn't have been risked. But of course, yeah, but they that, didn't. They didn't. These are the guys who haven't been playing that much. They need to get. That's exactly what you I was going to say. They need like the action. The guys who pulled up were the ones who have been overplayed in these first right. few months of the season. Then I think you could argue, well, okay, how wise was that? But in actual fact, these were particularly in the case of Danny Welbeck and incredibly unfortunate incident that I guess can happen at any time. Yeah. And, and ultimately, you know, I do think we're in a different situation than a few years ago because it was the case for Arsene Wenger that he had very clearly defined first 11 and beyond that, it was a lot of kids. And so, you know, he didn't have the same situation here where maybe Unai Emery wants to keep Aubameyang sharp and give him chances to play the number nine position, which he's not playing in the first team. And he wants to keep Danny Welbeck sharp. And, you know, he has players like Licksteiner who aren't 18, 19 years old, but he is the backup for Hector Bellerin right now and he needs matches. So, you know, there, there is a little more of a need to keep the players fit. And certainly I think the medical science, the technology behind tracking their fitness levels is sharper than it used to be. And so he will know full well if these players are in the, the fabled red zone or not. So we have to put a little trust in that, even though I admit that that is not always my strength. Sometimes I'm prone to the hysterics uh, when it comes to my reaction to things. One of which is the striker situation. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. After years of, you know, hardworking, if unspectacular, Olivier Giroud, and those are my words, I will not put those in your mouth, um, we now have two strikers who potentially sit at the top table of European football at that position. And the manager, or the coach in this case, has opted for Lacazette as his first choice number nine, and Aubameyang out on the wing. And he's sort of a low-touch player out there who doesn't always look comfortable I personally, you know, love Aubameyang. He's one of my favorite players, but I don't think that position has worked for him. How do you feel about the way Emery is handling his two-star number nines, and is there anything you might like to see him try differently? I think that was always going to be the um, the killer question about this season when he came in, is how can you get the best out of those two together in this squad? Um you know the, the 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 main tasks in a way that he he faced coming in um, was obviously uh, Arsenal's capacity to concede idiotic goals uh, <laughs> um, at in, uh, inopportune moments and show vulnerability. Just an overall approach to sort of more robust defending, but also how can you get this front half of the team to really uh, express itself to the maximum and. I mean, obviously, there's been flashes, a couple of remarkable team goals, some fantastic individual strikes. I'm still finding it a bit of a conundrum. I'm still not sure. And maybe he's still not sure. And I I think the decision to to go with Lacazette is an understandable one because uh, overall, he's a player whose work rate and whose determination to win the ball back and whose kind of consistency of energy level during the game makes him probably a more authentic focal point. Um, but you, you, you just wonder, you know, I think when Aubameyang, if he's playing up there on his own, 
there are moments when he drifts in and out the game and you feel like the initiative can sort of get lost a little bit. So I can see the logic in it, but you just, I'm just not sure that we're still getting the maximum yet. Yeah. And and the fact that you both enjoy playing together, which is obvious and get along is a really positive thing. But you've seen a few little tiny weeny signs of, little hints of discontent if one's had to be on the bench uh, and another one has been on in certain games where you know, neither of them look delighted, um, shall we say. But it's that, in a way, the victim is, is, is the system because if you've got an unbelievable midfield, yeah, you can play two guys up front in a sort of old-fashioned front two. Um, it, was, it was fine playing with... Bergkamp and, and uh, Henri, for example, or, or Ian Wright, because you have Patrick Vieira. <laughs> I mean, he was worth two or three midfield players on his own. And then you had next to him um, Emmanuel Petit or Gilberto Silva. And then you had next to them Ray Parler, who never stopped working. So there was an overall team balance that that originated from this uh, this great power in the centre of midfield. And having that, uh, allowed Arsenal to play with, you know, very, very brilliantly with two phenomenal attacking players up front and invariably a, a, a winger, either Pires or Overmars or whatever, who would be pushed up and, and at times become a third forward. Yeah, it's... I don't think that Arsenal has that luxury at the moment. Torreira has come in and, you know, if we're talking about what's exciting about Unai Emery, well, that's probably the most exciting thing of the lot. He's just a wonder. What an absolute gem of a player. And I find my eyes drawn to him when he's on the pitch so often because I just can't believe how thrilling it is to see a player that's eating up so much ground and making the impression, winning the ball, distributing the ball um, with such clarity uh, and such quickness of thought. It's that's been probably the you know arguably the highlight of the first half of this season. And he's 22, you know. I mean, and, and then you look at Ganduzi, who's 19, and I I think while we are right now very committed to 30 year old Aubameyang and 30 year old Mkhitaryan and 30 year old Mesut Ozil, um, and that is a worry and something that we're going to have to address over the next few windows. You see a, a young up and coming goalkeeper in Leno. You see a 22 year old holding midfielder, the likes of which we haven't had since Gilberto Silva potentially. Um, you know, very different player, obviously, but that position now looks uh, accounted for properly, finally. And then you see uh, a player in Ganduzi who, you know, I'm I'm still not sure where he will develop into in terms of how he plays. Is he a box to box eight? You know, is he a six? What is he? But the the youth players that we see coming through, and then Reese Nelson, what he's doing in Germany, there is some hope for the future. And I, you know, that is something that worried me going into this season, looking at the age distribution in the team. In some respects, I feel like we have the best pieces from three different sports cars, but they're not all meant to go in the same car. When you look at Ozil, Ramsey, Lacazette, um, Aubameyang, all very talented players, whether or not they all fit together in the same system is, is certainly a question that Emery has to try to answer. And maybe the hard choices are going to be dropping a player who it almost seems unfathomable to drop, but has to be dropped for the best interest of the, the team overall. So having said that, I think that's yeah, where on. it's going to be very interesting when the, when the uh, caliber of opponents starts ramping up. Yeah. So 
you know, that Tottenham game, for example, that we're talking about, or, or you know, when, when the, it's not gone unnoticed that Arsenal's sort of most focused, um, energised performance of the season probably was against Liverpool. Absolutely. Um, you know, let's. It's good. That's part of the development and evolution of the team is um, putting in performances against the higher calibre opponent, which was a problem for the last few years. Um, so that's going to be another step. There's lots of steps that Arsenal have to take under Unai Emery. And some of them are going to be manageable over this one season. Some of it will just be um, half a step. And, you know, it's not unreasonable if you're really thinking about the amount of rethinking of a whole psyche of a team that is going on, that it's going to take more than a season. You know, you're going to, going to need, again, another probably interesting summer, another committed summer. Uh, with clever signings, you know, if you can find another Torreira and Ganduzi uh, for that, you know, another couple of players of, the, of that caliber for for thirty million between them, but maybe in a different department of the team, central defense perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> what, what on earth gives you that? Uh, uh, that? It, it, he's German, and his name Schroeder Mustafi. <laughs> well, anyway, it, it, you get the drift. But um, you know, there it. This was never going to be a quick fix. This this job. Um, and I think our judgment of it has to reflect that and therefore the best thing we, that anybody can do with this season is kind of almost kick back and relax and, and, and engage as much as you can and feel part of it as much as you can and enjoy it as much as you can but maybe expectancy at this point shouldn't really be through the roof but I don't think it is for most people I think certainly the, the vibes that you get from from the crowd is that people just feel like it's a good thing to be enjoying going again and feeling hopeful again without actually reaching for the stars because there is an acceptance stars and aren't ready for that yet. Yeah, and I think there would have been even more patience, but ironically, because of the good run we've been on with respect to results and because of the struggles that United are going through and being within touching different distance of top four and, and it looking realistic, Emery may have elevated expectations in a season where he otherwise might have had a grace period, which is a little unfair, but it may have happened. I, I, I want to wrap up, but I want to just ask you two quick final questions. With January looming, um, we now have a head coach and not a manager. And so I'm just curious to get your thoughts on how that works logistically. Could Emery go to the the backroom team and say, hey, this is what I need, and then they identify the players and they sign them? How much Im- input do you think he has in, in incomings and outgoings, or do you think that is really done outside of his purview? I think that in any of these uh, cases, you have to give people their defined roles, but you have to hope there's also communication within that. So, um, you know, Raul uh, Sinelli is is not a, a stupid guy. I mean, if there's a weakness in the team, he knows about it, and he's going to know the people that might be able to uh, address those weaknesses. And dealing with Sven Mislintat, the, the new head of um, scouting and so on and so forth. So these guys are talking all the time um, and they're planning not just for the next window or the window after that, but even possibly further down the line. Um, but I think that they would include Emery in conversations, but I think he doesn't get final say. That's fairly normal, I think, in uh, in the way these things tend to operate now. I would be surprised if there's movement in January of any great scale, unless something very unusual happens. So, a super serious injury to to someone which leaves a position deeply under strength. They'll have to go and try and do something. Um, 
But uh, or, or again, if something too unbelievable falls in their lap, in other words, you know, Aubameyang, it was very unusual to go and spend that kind of money in the January and to be able to get a deal over the line because clubs generally don't want to sell top players at, at, at that time for obvious reasons. That was an exception. Who knows if there's another exception? But I don't think financially Arsenal are, are keen to spend money in January. I'm not sure they're going to be that keen to spend an awful lot next summer either. Um, but I, I wouldn't hold your breath on on uh, January reinforcements. All right, we'll have to do it with what he has uh, in the arsenal, so to speak. So then as a final question, do you think we can sneak in the top four this season or is that maybe a bridge too far for now? It's November, of course. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> I mean, hello. I like, it is a lot of football to be played. To be uh, feeling um, the positive vibes of improvement in the team and still in a position where uh, I think everybody accepts Manchester City are super favourites um, and that Liverpool and Chelsea are doing a very grand job keeping within touching distance. And then it's it looks like one out of three, unless either Liverpool or Chelsea have a, a major tumble. Uh, but who, do you, who are you going to pick from Arsenal, Tottenham or Man United? You can make a case for any of them and you can make a case for any of them messing it up. So... Um, it's absolutely there to be won, that fourth spot. And uh, I think Unai Emery, from what I heard of him as a guy, is super determined to make sure that, that that's what he tries to land. doesn't want to wait till next year to get back in the Champions League. He wants to, wants to do it now. And I think that's another reason why he keeps going on about the Europa League. He wants to win it. Yeah. And he wants to win it because he wants silverware, but he wants to win it to get in the Champions League. And he's he's mentioned that countless times. It's a bit of a mantra. Doesn't mean to say Arsenal are going to do it, but he's sure as hell going to go for it. He's got a lot of experience winning. It'd be nice if the big clubs in the Champions League weren't screwing up so badly and parachuting into the Europa League. It looks like it could be a pretty crowded field there. But yeah, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Look, it is early. We'll see. I mean, the back-to-back games against Spurs and United will be an interesting measuring stick. I thought the Liverpool game was really encouraging. Um, so hopefully we can continue, go from strength to strength, and then uh, find ourselves back in the Champions League next season. But I, I want to thank you, man. I know we ran a little longer than expected, um, but it was an absolute pleasure, and I know everyone listening will have appreciated it. So thank you so much. You're welcome. And uh, here's to the next 250. Good luck with that. <laughs> how, no old am I, how old am I now? Um, all right, well, look, Amy is on Twitter at AmyLawrence71. Follow her there. Definitely read her book, Invincible. Definitely see her movie, 89. Definitely read her in The Guardian and Observer, and just generally support her many endeavors. So... We are now going to take a break, learn a little bit about some lingerie, and come back with the stars of the ArsCast Extra as our 250th episode rolls on. Okay, it's time to tell you about our friends at EnclosedLingerie.com. That's Enclosed, E-N-C-L-O-S-E-D, Lingerie, L-I-N-G-E-R-I-E, EnclosedLingerie.com. You're going to want to go there right now because they are offering you $35 off any gift of lingerie from their site using checkout code ARSENAL. Enclosed Lingerie is a Lingerie of the Month gift, uh, similar to Beer of the Month or Flower of the Month, but every month you are going to receive high-end luxury lingerie for your partner. This is something that you got to do. It enhances the intimacy and the closeness in your relationship. That doesn't happen on its own. It takes time, it takes energy and effort, and this shows real thoughtfulness. Plus, you don't have to wander around a department store sheepishly. You're getting something with a perfect fit guarantee, so size will never be an issue. And you're going to love giving this gift to your partner. I'm married. I have a toddler. 
Um, I have a great relationship with my wife, but I have to admit that keeping that closeness is something you have to really focus on, especially as time goes by and your family grows. So this is something you should absolutely do for your loved one. Go to enclosedlingerie.com, enter Arsenal at checkout. You'll get $35 off any enclosed gift, and you're giving something that shows real thoughtfulness, that's unique, that's just for you and your partner. Go there now, enclosedlingerie.com, and enter Arsenal at checkout for $35 off your gift. Do it now. And now, much like Serge Nabry going to Tony Pulis's West Brom on loan, we've got the Arscast Extra crew here to talk to us, and we are thrilled to be able to introduce James. You can find him on Twitter, at Gunnerblog. Hello, James. Hello there. Good to talk to you. Um, I don't know if you're still in any hot water from your uh, honeymoon video, the viral Got Enough video, <laughs> but if you are, uh, we have a sponsor that can help you with that, so you can always let me know if you need that. That's true. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll, I'll speak to you about that when we stop recording. Makes sense, yeah. Okay, and Andrew is obviously at Arsblog. I uh, can read all the stuff at the Arsblog. You know, that's where he is. Uh, hi, Andrew. Hey, Elliot. How are you? Uh, good, yeah. Thanks, guys, for joining on our <clears throat> 250th episode. Uh, Congratulations. Th- thanks, yeah. At least a few people have listened to some of these. It was a pleasure to talk to Amy Lawrence and really uh, appreciate having you guys on. And Andrew... Just sort of start with you because there was some news this week about the Super League, the dreaded uh, European Super League, but Arsenal did confirm that they have been in talks about this, and you kind of understand that. I mean, if discussions are happening, you wouldn't want Arsenal to be left out of those conversations, but at the same time, I think it is a worry. But you know, every time I've heard this issue brought up, it is met with sort of obvious skepticism and uh, outrage and yet it's very rarely articulated specifically why it would be bad. And obviously, I, I tend to think that it would be a terrible development for football and for Arsenal fans generally. But for people who maybe aren't as clear on why people are so put off by this suggestion, can you maybe just sort of articulate why for you a Super League is a terrible idea and terrible for Arsenal? Um, yeah, okay, I'll give it a try. I think it's because it would be a construct... Um, not of sporting reasons. You know, obviously the Premier League exists, um, which was the old Division One, and the football leagues existed and were brought into existence to create uh, competition in football. And the same with the European trophies, the, the European Cup, and as it is now, the extended Champions League, the Europa League, which was the UEFA Cup, amalgamated with the Cup Winners Cup. These things existed for sporting reasons, and I don't think a European Super League uh, would be brought into existence for the furtherance of football or the game itself. I think it would be about sponsorship and marketing and um, TV subscriptions uh, and prize money for the clubs. And why I think it would be a bad idea for for Arsenal and for football in general is because, I, well, I think it would be terrible for fans because whatever you might want to think about Crystal Palace in relation to PSG in terms of their profile you know there's history between Arsenal and Crystal Palace's two London clubs you have maybe four or five sometimes six London derbies in a season they're competitive if you go into a European Super League what is the history that Arsenal have with PSG apart from we could find their 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 money distasteful in a way you know you you miss out all of that history in a way which is a, a real driver for football for fans it's terrible because you know, how can you go to every game if you've got to tra- uh, travel and get flights and accommodation? I know there are some people who can go to all the European games, but if you're 
you know, half your games are away in Europe, that would be terrible. And the other thing is that because there's, in the documents that came out, there's no relegation for 20 years. I think that was what they said. Maybe it was 15 years. I can't quite remember. But no relegation. What happens when you get to, like, December and you're not going to win the thing, but you can't be relegated? You just play a half a season or more of no-stakes football with nothing. You just go through the motions. and You pick up your sponsorship money and TV money and subscription money and all that. But I just don't think there's any good sporting reason for it to happen. Yeah, and I think you hit on a problem, too, is long-term also. If if there's no relegation, what's the incentive for someone like Stan Kroenke to make the team even competitive in that league? Um, yeah. You know, th- there's none whatsoever. Although I hear you talking about sponsorship and marketing and all the r- places that revenue could be driven up, and I, I picture him making the Homer Simpson drooling face at all of that, so it is a little bit scary. But then, yeah. James, I think that there is a tension then between that and what the FA is potentially doing and the tension between the FA and the Premier League. And this week, I think there was... Um, some ar- some articles out there suggesting that the FA was looking at implementing new rules, further restricting uh, foreign players in Premier League teams, and increasing the homegrown requirements. Um, you know, and that seems to be the kind of thing that could push the bigger clubs potentially into a European Super League because it could have an impact on future television revenues, which have already sort of flattened or slightly decreased. So, do you think the FA has to maybe do a better job of working with the Premier League to make the domestic league? as desirable and strong as possible? Maybe. I mean, those uh, proposed regulations about British nationals in, in in the squads and homegrown players presumably is is partly a consequence of what's happening politically here with Brexit. And, you know, with, it's. I think it's astonishing that people haven't spoken more about the sporting implications of Brexit and the impact it could have upon football i mean you only have to go back to the sort of early 90s when i think it was three three foreign players were allowed in in a, an english football league team and uh, you know I, I do think it's it's distressing and concerning that the the lack of freedom of movement could have an impact on football i'm sure that the authorities will work to circumnavigate that because i think it's you know there's so much power and money invested in the premier league that diluting uh, the quality of it i think would would be costly to everybody involved as far as the super league goes i do think that they i think there would be a real challenge genuinely to offer a stronger brand than the Premier League. I think if you look at the Premier League and the Champions League, I think in terms of like television and the money involved, the Premier League is still incredibly powerful. And I do think that persuading clubs to move away from that will be very, very tricky because I think in itself, it's, you know, it's the envy of every other uh, football league in the world. And I, I'm not sort of trying to, you know, tub thump or bang the drum as, a, as an Englishman here. I'm just talking about it in commercial terms. It's massive. And I think any Super League might struggle to to offer something more alluring than that. Um, but I, look, I, I worry about what you mentioned, the FA. But the FA and the Premier League have long, long disagreed on many issues. And I know the Richard Scudamore is moving on from the Premier League. They've got a new chief executive coming in. Hopefully that can provide a smoother working relationship going forward. But I wouldn't say I'm particularly optimistic about that because those two organizations are, are regularly at odds. Yeah, it, it's pretty astonishing just the amount of, of graft and greed in football. And I mean, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but I, I just feel like it is uniquely uh, avaricious among all sport. Um, but enough hmm. about that. Let, let's talk Arsenal. And uh, Unai Emery and what he's done so far. It's almost a third of the season. So, Andrew, what have been your your highs and lows so far? Maybe the, the highest moment or um, sort of 
uh, change or move by Emery this season and maybe the low point of his season for you so far? Not sure there really has been a, a low point per se because we are only 12 games into the Premier League season. Uh, you know, people look at what's happening at Chelsea and wonder why Unai Emery isn't maybe producing what Sarri is at, at Chelsea in terms of the type of football. that They seem to have a very distinct style and we are still finding our way a little bit, aren't we, in, in terms of how we're playing and how we approach each game, uh, trying to find that that one common thread between all our performances is is a little bit difficult. I suppose the, the, the thing that really stands out for me is physically how much stronger we look. Um, we last longer in games. You saw the stats, I'm sure, which said that we, we're running further than mm-hmm. any other team. We're sprinting more, perhaps, than most teams, certainly more than we were doing in the past. And what Emery said when he took over was, you know, the very least I promise you is hard work. This is a, a team and a squad and a group of players that do work hard. Whereas last year, you could see certain games where players went through the motions. You know, if we went a goal down away from home, you put more money on them scoring another one than us getting an equalizer. Whereas we've conceded goals and we've hit back and we've performed well in, in second half. So I'm still trying to figure it all out and still biding my time a little bit. I think the Liverpool game was a positive. The fact that we couldn't quite follow it up with something better in the the games afterwards um, maybe might be construed as a bit, a bit of a negative. But it, I, I do think we are going to have these moments where where things click and everything looks like it's going. Is, is that a tank? Is there an invasion? I mean, what the hell? That's, anyway, yeah. I don't know what that was. But, I, you know, I think we are going to have to get used to the idea of, of taking a step forward and then maybe taking a step back or two steps forward and one step back as he tries to find balance within a particularly imbalanced squad of players. So that that's kind of where I think... <laughs> I, I think James is remodeling his home in the middle of this recording, which is fair. So He's a very it, busy man. That's fine. Yeah, I, I don't know what that noise was. I think it was a motorbike, but I I don't have the vantage point to see. So it in your house, that motorbike. <laughs> yes, it's in it's it's next door. It's in the kitchen. You guys have seen the movie Animal House, right? <laughs> Where he rides yeah. the motor motorbike down the stairs. It was exactly <laughs> like that. Um, well, th- th- I think that's fair. I think you know, if I had to pick a low point, and I'm always uh, perfectly happy to do that. I think you're the man. I am the man for that. I've got the right job there. I I think the second half at Chelsea would have been what I'd pick because I I thought he called off the dogs a little bit and maybe went a little too conservative. And mm. and that was maybe a mistake given the way that game was going and how open it was. And I'm not saying we would have won it otherwise, yeah. but I, I think we were there. You could understand the caution, though, couldn't you? Because, mm-hmm. you know, we'd, we'd had that little 15-minute spell where we created all those chances in the, in the final part of the first half. And you get it back to 2-2, having been 2-0 down, and it didn't look good. And all of a sudden, we burst into life. You know, he still doesn't know or didn't know at that point what his players were capable of, I think. True, that's so fair. I can understand that as, as a, it was disappointing to lose, but I, I could understand the approach there. And I just think naturally away from home, you're a little more I- inclined to sit back um, in, in a game like that. So I wouldn't really put that as a, as a low point for me, but. Hey. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think 
just to balance this out so I don't seem like a total doom monger, uh, despite my reputation, I, th- I think the Liverpool cl- game was clearly the high point, personally. I just thought the way we were able to battle and fight and, and be the better side uh, over 90 minutes, I thought was really mm-hmm. encouraging. James, I think, um, you know, th- there's been a lot of things that I have railed on about over the years, maybe none more than my feelings about Olivier Giroud. And this year, I've decided to keep the topic squarely on the strikers. So mm-hmm. let's get into the striker situation. I mean, I am a huge Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang fan. Uh, I was delighted when we signed him. We have put a lot of money into two strikers uh, in two consecutive windows. And I'm not convinced that that left wing position has worked for Aubameyang. So I'm curious to get your take on you know, whether you would continue to go with Aubameyang on the left and Lacazette through the middle, or if you maybe have an alternate approach to, to how to handle the striker situation that we could communicate to Emery and get this sorted out. Well, when you, I was thinking back about my highlights of the season and the high points particularly, inevitably you think about games. And apart from the Liverpool one, the one that really stands out, I would say, was the Fulham match. Yeah. And that was a game in which we played pretty much a conventional 4-4-2 with two, two strikers, Danny Welbeck and Alexandre Lacazette, on that day. And I am surprised we've not seen that system come into play since then. Uh, not in every game but I thought you know certain instances we might see something a bit more like that I mean arguably uh, we we had two strikers in the second half against Wolves but that mm-hmm. was a sort of different situation where we were chasing the game and the midfield setup was very different it wasn't a flat four it was more like a diamond or it was a I forget almost it was like a three wasn't it with Gendouzi tucked in alongside uh, Torreira and Shaka. so I oh, or did Shaka come off? I forget. Either way, it wasn't a four four two as as we would conventionally know it. I would love to see that system again. However, I think Emery's reticence to use it kind of tells its own story, and I'm not particularly optimistic about it. I think Aubameyang, look, he's joint top goal scorer in the Premier League or close to it. Um, he's been very productive. He hasn't even scored all of those goals starting games. He's come off the bench, had tremendous impact, but what he's not done is been involved in games consistently and had a positive impression over the 90 minutes. But my question would be, is he ever going to be, is that something that you just accept whether he's playing center forward or left wing, he's always going to be a guy who, what he does is arrive in the box and score goals, take up great positions, beat the final man, score the goal. He's never going to be someone who you're wowed by, you know, about his possession play or his link play. Um, so I, I, I suspect I'm a little bit more relaxed than you about where his starting position is because I feel like wherever it is, he is at least finding those opportunities, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. I, for me, the issue is having a low-touch striker who scores a lot of goals is great. Having a low-touch wide player, even if he's scoring, can be problematic if it sort of chokes up, uh, chokes off your build-up play, and I think there's been mm. some of that happening, especially if he's a low defensive intensity player. Um, you know, we haven't had Nacho Monreal. We've been playing with less than uh, superlative left backs, and obviously our, our defensive issues are are legion. So having a more active defensive left winger could be helpful too. Um, you know, and, and look, some of it is just personal preference. I happen to really like Aubameyang. I would like to see him at center forward. I mean, Andrew, are you surprised? Look, he was the center forward for the first two games, uh, mm. City and Chelsea. And then I think he started the third game at center forward, and then that was where uh, we made the switch, and he hasn't started in that position since then in the league. So, I mean, do you are you surprised that he hasn't even really gotten a chance to play as the striker in the league since those first two and a half games? Yeah, just sort of on his, on his own merits. You know, when you sign a £55 million striker, he's one of the most lethal finishers in Europe, and you consistently play him on the left-hand side, it is hard to get your head around. I mean, I can understand it to an extent because 
He's had Lacazette in the team. Lacazette, I don't think, can do the job from the left-hand side the same way. Um, so it, it is a bit of a conundrum for him. And I think one of the, the things that myself and James have talked about on our podcast, and I hear you guys talk about it on, on this podcast, is is about finding the balance in the team. And it's a case maybe of trying to find more balance and maybe having to make a difficult decision and leave somebody out, whether it's Lacazette or whether it's Aubameyang. Maybe on a game-by-game basis, he has to decide which one of his center forwards is better better suited to the opposition. Uh, and it is it is tough when you've got two 55 million pound, uh, 50 million pound strikers, more or less, and you're not playing with two up front. I mean, that seems the obvious solution, but do we have the rest of the players to be able to play with with two up front? Uh, like James, I'm a little bit surprised that the 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 system we saw against Fulham hasn't been repeated. Um, but, but Mesut Ozil wasn't available that day, was it? As I recall, yeah. and I think you know Back that back problem exactly and i think that is 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 maybe the big factor here because he is someone who doesn't necessarily fit that shape in any discernible position just a quick thing on the two strikers i was just thinking about it then and while i would agree that our front four hasn't really clicked as often as we would like this season i do worry that the player who does give it real structure a lot of the time is lacazette and i and i fear that if you take him out of that team I feel I, I I'm guessing you know we don't know but I feel like you might get an even less coherent front four because I just feel like he is the fulcrum who at least ties it together at times and I feel like if you take him out and you go with a low touch player in there like Aubameyang uh, I worry that we haven't even necessarily got the guys to go behind to make to make that work as a four I feel like Lacazette's the only guy who can who can pull all that together and link the play as the centre forward and that, and that's seemingly what Emery requires from his number nine yeah i mean that, that's entirely possible i think the, the interesting thing is though if you move Aubameyang central and take lacazette out it means you get to bring in another uh more on the ball ball dominant player mm-hmm. into that wide position like an awobi right so someone who can dribble someone who can beat a man uh right now we have very very little of that and part of that too i think is ramsey hasn't really gotten a play on the right mkhitaryan's maybe been a little more disappointing than we would have hoped on the right, uh, Iwobi doesn't seem to be the same player when he plays on the right. So we're definitely short a winger. Um, yeah, I mean, James, how do you feel about what's happening with Ramsey? I mean, I know you've spoken about it. So anyone who's listening to your podcast, which is everyone listening to this podcast, will will sort of have a sense of your feelings. But with rumors now that he might be off to Bayern Munich and you know the likelihood that we are going to lose him for free, I'm just curious to sort of get your take on how significant a problem this is for the club and, and you know what we need to do to try to replace that loss. I mean, it's difficult to get too angry about it because the mistake has been made. The mistake was made at the latest this summer. You know, I, I really was of the, the opinion that a decision had to be made on Aaron Ramsey in the summer transfer window. And that was that he sign a new deal or be sold. And as I think as far as like a month out from transfer deadline, I was kind of saying they they need to sell this guy because it's not going to happen. Um, and I, one of the questions actually we had for the Ask Us section this this week that I forgot to get round to was about would I rather would I rather it's probably from Facebook sorry Facebook <laughs> uh, I, would, would I rather sell Aaron Ramsey to a Premier League club in January or lose him abroad for free That's at the end of question. season? It's too bad you can't remember who it's right. Although if it came from Facebook, it's probably from a Russian troll farm, so it's fine. <laughs> uh, and it is a good question. And my genuine 
feeling is that I would uh, take the money from any source for yeah. Aaron Ramsey at this point. Like I, I'm so sick of losing players, even though it would be undervalued. The idea of losing a player with his kind of market value for nothing uh, is absolutely infuriating to me, especially given that we might, we had that happen with Jack Wilshere. We might have that happen with, uh, you know, Danny Welbeck. I don't even know how long David Espina has got left on his deal. It a feels year. like we're just, a year so it feels like we're just money uh, leaving money on the table all over the place and it it's not like from what we're hearing inside the club we've got so much cash to spend i just don't think given the work that we have to do on the squad that we could possibly afford to leave money on the table in the form of aaron ramsey however the power lies with the player at this point and you know why would he go in january it's not even like there's say a world cup or a european championships on the horizon where he's like i desperately need to be playing football this season in order to keep my international place or something of that ilk you know i think for him it probably makes sense to sit tight see it out and make a huge amount of money come next summer but i find that maddening absolutely maddening yeah it becomes a huge problem too because then if we don't have the revenues from selling assets like aaron ramsey uh, we obviously got no money for alexis sanchez although we got mkhitaryan who we cannot turn in any money you worry then down the road you could be in a situation where if lucas Torreira looks like a world beater and 60 million pound offers start coming in for him you wind up having to sell players that you want to hold on to to make up for the revenue you didn't generate with previous players mm. and that you know that would be a real shame because in Torreira and uh Ganduzi, we look to have two players that could be the future of the club really I mean I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the next 10 years at the club could be largely down to their involvement the success or failure of the club so Andrew I know you are a huge fan of uh Shodan Mustafi but I want you to set aside the personal preference for a second and look <laughs> at it objectively with a lot of big games on the horizon and a much tougher schedule coming up than the old Project mm. 24, that was really Project 22, um, what do you think is the best center-back pairing between the three that have been playing? Uh, I don't know, really. I was looking at this earlier. Uh, Holding and Socrates have started in four Europa League games together and kept uh, we've kept a clean sheet in three of those. We've, uh, uh, we let in some goals, I think it was against Vorsklau, was it was four two or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we haven't seen enough of Holding and Socrates to say that that's our best central defensive pairing, but we haven't seen enough of it. Maybe we've seen enough of Mustafi plus Holding or Socrates to suggest that there's a common denominator there. Um, I think it's an area where we're really, we're really a bit weak, you know, and. I'd like to see us go with Socrates and Holding just because we haven't seen it. Um, we have been generous, I think it would be fair to say, in terms of the chances that we've allowed the opposition throughout the season. And I don't mean to say that it's entirely down to the centre of our defence because there are defensive issues throughout the team, I think. Um, but if you can get a good partnership going there, it does help. It really does help. I mean, uh, uh, Holding appears to be seems to have jumped ahead of Socrates or although it does depend how much he has been affected by that injury he picked up um he's back playing for Greece so we'll see what what Unai Emery does on Sunday when we go away to Bournemouth you know we'll have Koscielny back at some point soon as well so we'll have four center halves which might give him a little more scope to move things around when we've got Europa League games and Carabao Cup games and uh, you know we're obviously playing Tottenham in that so 
it's it's just impossible to say which one is our best. But the one that I haven't seen enough mm. of is uh, Socrates and Holding, and I'm all for giving that a little bit of a go, so we get a bit more insight into how they might work together as a pairing. Yeah, I'd love to see that. I mean, I think Holding has progressed to the level where he can be a perfectly solid partner to a strong leading center back next to him. Uh, and mm. I think Socrates, both on experience and characteristics, has the quality to do that. I, you know, I am not a huge Mustafi fan myself, um, mm. and and I don't know that it does holding any favors playing next to a guy that is as rash as he tends to be. Um, I mean, do you think it's fair, just Andrew, really quick, to expect anything from Kashelny? I mean, what what are your basic sort of expectations of what he can add now that he's theoretically back in the mix? Um, experience leadership, whether it be the same player is, uh, you know, I think there was probably a case to be made that Koscielny was, was declining a little bit last season as well. And I think if he hadn't had the injury, he probably wouldn't be at the club right now. He talked about how he might want to go when, when Wenger left and you could understand that. So what can he bring us? He can bring us experience. He can bring us a bit of uh, composure at the back. I, I, I think it's a lot to expect for him to come back from, such a traumatic injury at 33 years of age and be the Lauren Koscielny that, you know, we really enjoyed when he was at his peak. But I don't think you could write him off. I think we've got good medical people at the, the club right now and good rehab people and fitness people who will be who will be working with him to get him back up to speed as quickly as they can, but without being reckless in any way. So... I think he'll he'll be eased back into action a little bit, but you know if things don't improve uh, at the back with Mustafi, with Holding, with Socrates, if if there is an issue there, then he might just be the guy that they use in the second half of this season. If he can get the games uh, into those legs, he just might be the best option that we we have at centre half, and that will say a lot about what we've got at center half, doesn't it? That, you know, a guy who's right in the very September, October of his career is the best option that we have. Um, you know, it, it's unconvincing there at the moment, but it could change quite quickly. You know, if Holding and Socrates do come together and form a partnership, we could be sitting here in a month's time thinking, well, this is great. So you, you can write it off, but um, at the moment, it's it's hard to have a great deal of confidence. Yeah, if I had to put on my optimist hat, which admittedly is in the back of the closet and very, very dusty, um, I think I would say that Koscielny was maybe in decline in part because he was plagued by ankle trouble, Achilles trouble, and maybe this time away has allowed him sort of ironically to totally heal that up, and that uh, Koscielny not playing every game, needing like pain-killing injections and with Achilles in problems may be a better Koscielny, albeit maybe a step slower, but better than what we had. I mean, that that may be total projection on my part, but it's kind of what my optimist hat would make me think. Um, so, James, it's it's going to be it's going to be an, an interesting couple of games back to back when we face uh, Spurs and United in consecutive league games. And I, I am not convinced that Emery is totally sure what his best team or system is. And if Clive were on right now, what he would say, albeit in a much uh, sexier voice, is that <laughs> there is no system or set lineup and we should be okay with that. Um, but I'm going to force you into one. If you had to pick how you'd set us up for those games, uh, who, who would you pick, you know, sort of generally and how would you like to see us set up for, the, for those two big games? Ooh, that is difficult to predict, isn't it? I think, uh, well, 
I, although I've spoken earlier in this about wanting to see four four two, I don't think either of those games are are the games for that. I think uh, who would I want to see? I mean, the two the team's got to be built around Shaka and Torreira for me because that's I think been the most coherent, the most promising element, and most consistent really part of the the, the pitch. Um, so I'd work from that. I'd, it's going to be a back four, even though listening to your chat about centre-halves, I keep thinking every centre-half we have is more comfortable in a three than in a two. Uh, I keep thinking that if you if I had to pick two centre-halves to play for my life for the current Arsenal squad, I'd probably pick Koscielny and Monreal. Or jump off a cliff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, one's crocked and one's a left-back. But I mean, yeah, so centre-half is a huge uh, concern. But I guess... I guess your best team is something like Leno, who I think has really established himself now at this point. Bellerin, who, in terms of the upsides of, of Emery coming in, I think Hector Bellerin's improvement this season's really up there as one of the real positives, uh, as well as a clutch of other young players. Holding would be included in that, Wobi too. But yeah, I suppose you'd have Bellerin and Monreal. Hopefully he'll be back and fully fit. Centre-half, I'm inclined to agree with you guys. I think I've seen quite enough of Mustafi alongside anybody. So I'd be interested in Socrates and Holding. I know it's relatively untested, but I feel like that's probably the best partnership that we can currently do, especially given that we need Monreal at left back. Shaka and Torreira speaks for itself. Uh, and then ahead of that, mm, I wonder if we're going to see Emery revert to just using one of his two centre forwards like he did in the very early part of the season, especially, I think, given the injury to Danny Welbeck and the fact that that means he really hasn't got a top class striker coming off the bench in most games. And we know how much he likes to use his bench. We know how important he considers that last 20 minutes within games. I feel like we might see him keeping one of those guys in reserve as a game changer for the next few weeks. Because, you know, as much as I rate Eddie Nketiah, I think he's a promising young player. I think asking him to come off the bench with 20 minutes to go against Spurs or, or United and make a huge difference, I think that's a lot to ask at this stage. So I wonder if keeping one back not only solves the problem of playing one out of position, but it also gives you a little bit more flexibility off the bench within games. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. And I think, uh, you know, I listened to uh, Andrew, to your interview with uh, Orn David Ornstein. And, mm. you know, obviously there's been a lot of talk of recalling Reese Nelson from loan. It doesn't look like that's going to happen or that the club doesn't want to do that. And I would be in favor of him not being recalled because I think his development is aided by staying there rather than coming in in sort of an emergency situation at Arsenal. But given that situation, and we'll start to wrap up now, but with January on the horizon, I know how you feel about center back and our need for center back. But we also know that in holding and Mavropanos and, you know, Chambers out on loan, not impressing Mm. to be fair. But, you know, we have some young developing center back talent. We have, you know, three senior in inverted commas center backs between Koscielny and Mustafi and Socrates who are at the club. If you had to pick a position to buy in January and we're going to make one purchase of a really top quality player, would you rather it be a center back or a wide forward, a winger like a, you know, an Usmani Dembele? Oh, I think I'd rather a left back. A left back over both. Yeah, that's actually a good shout, but... Um, yeah. Okay. But yeah, I know you're you're asking me for for this. I mean, I think no. I mean, uh, that's if that's your answer, I I actually totally see the wisdom in that. But yeah, I mean, between those yeah. other two, what do you think? <laughs> sure. I mean, <laughs> I think you're right in terms of center half that we have the numbers and who might be available in January um, to come in at center half is is another question. But that applies just as much to who's going to be available from an attacking point of view. We we talked about 
Usmani Dembele on the on the Arscast Extra this morning, and it's very rare. You know, I don't see Arsenal um, giving Barcelona a big chunk of money for for Dembele. I don't think we have anything like the kind of money that would even be uh, in the ballpark of an acceptable bid for him. And I just don't think that clubs loan out 100 million pound players. Um, it would be great if he came in on loan and Barcelona were willing to do that. I mean, there was the um, James move, right? Didn't didn't Real loan James to, Bar- uh, to Bayern before the permanent yeah, move or something like that? Maybe so, maybe so. But I think there was probably a clause yeah. mm-hmm. to, to, to buy him. I mean, look, I suppose the... the the two things, if we're going to be ridiculously wildly optimistic, right? There's two things going on here. One is that Dembele and Sven Mislintat obviously have a a relationship uh, because he was the guy that brought him to to Dortmund in the first place. I think um, he knows Socrates, he knows Mkhitaryan, I'm sure he knows uh, Aubameyang, and also we have somebody with a very very strong connection to Barcelona in Raul Sanyehi, who is our head of football and who was director of football at Barcelona for uh, a good number of years. So I would assume that that relationship is still pretty strong. Um, I still give this about a 2% chance of happening, though. That's fairly high compared to what I was thinking, to, to be honest. <laughs> it's, it's fairly high. I'm, I told you I got my wildly optimistic hat on here. Um, look, I think... I think with the the injury to Welbeck is really unfortunate for him, but also for us because he's so versatile, because he can play on the left, he can play up front, he can play on the right. You can stick him in as a sort of a a number 10, as Emery did at Crystal Palace. Uh, Not that it worked particularly well, but he does have that versatility and he gives you the option from the bench. Um, He scored, he can score goals, we know that. Um, What we've got in the squad at the moment isn't quite as convincing, uh, you know, as James says, and is very young. Um, Emile Smith Rowe maybe can play in one of the, the wide positions, uh, Ainsley Maitland Niles, but you know, you're not, you're not going with any real guarantee of those players being able to make an impact. So if I had to choose between a forward and a center half in January, I'd pick a forward, but if I could choose anywhere, in January, I'd like a really good left back because I think fullbacks are are a really big part of how Emery wants his Great team point. to play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bellerin is leading the way with Premier League assists um, with four. He shares that with Aaron Ramsey. And Nacho Monreal played quite well. I'm not sure it's a coincidence that Kalasinac is back in and we're not really uh, attacking particularly well down that left-hand side and we're looking defensively vulnerable down that left-hand side and I know he's just back from injury and everything else but he's a really unconvincing player to me. Monreal's getting a bit older and I think in terms of what what we want to do and how we want to play the game if we can find a not quite a carbon copy but a player similar in style to Hector Bellerin on the left-hand side I think I'd really like that, and I think it would make a, a difference to the way to the way we perform. No, that's a great point. I think if Emery's going to be our coach for many years, the future of our success probably depends on having a permanent solution at, at both fullback positions, um, and there isn't one at left back. So I agree with that. All right, before we go, it says here that I'm contractually obligated to ask you one of these. So James, would you rather listen to <laughs> one Arsenal Vision podcast episode that's just me singing or record... <laughs> A hundred Arscast Extra episodes that's just would-you-rather questions. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. Big there. time. <laughs> um, I'll I'll choose. I will listen to you sing, Elliot. I, I'm a fan. I wow. know, you know, I know, I know <laughs> it gets kind. a mixed reception uh, out there on the interwebs. Is that what we're calling mixed these days? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. as a man who has ventured into, uh, you know, a bit of warbling myself <laughs> yes. uh, to, to my cost on the internet, uh, the cost of my dignity, essentially, <laughs> uh, I empathize with you and, you know, I, I respect you for doing it. So I will choose, I will choose that. I don't think a hundred ask cast of would you rather questions is something that needs to happen for, for anybody i mean for technically me, for, over time in aggregate you will have that in the library um i will tell you uh if you ever really really want to humiliate me you can search around and find an ep i recorded of uh piano power ballads that uh what the oh, shit really I, I am not kidding you yeah Mm-hmm. You see, how do, you, how do we find that one? There's no, another Elliot no, Smith. I'm not. See, if you can find it, then you get the reward. This is going to be like that, uh, you know, like po- my, Pokemon Go. But I'm not yeah, giving you the Yeah, this is my treasure hunt now. I'm going to find that fucker. The fuck you are. Uh, yeah, in any and event, then we're going to blackmail you for everything you're worth. <laughs> look, all of my or- humiliations are documented on the internet, so it's it's not going to work, <laughs> I assure you. Um, James, anything you're doing right now that you want to promote other than the, uh, the Arscast Extra? Um, not really. I only say that we're starting something new this week for Patreon members on Ask Blog. We're starting a, a new podcast called the Passcast Extra, where we're going to look back at games from the past, famous, iconic Arsenal matches, and review them uh, as if they had just happened, essentially, a bit like we would on a normal Arsecast Extra. So look out for those and uh, do check out the Patreon because there's loads of great stuff there. Are you, have you decided between the uh, 6 nil at Stamford Bridge or the 8-2 at Old Trafford for the first one? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to save those for like a, spe- a special celebratory, you know, 100th episode or 250th maybe like this one. Kind of like we saved the performance for Arson's 1,000th game, exactly. exactly. Okay, well, James is on Twitter at Gunnerblog. Thank you, James. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, Andrew's quite obviously at Ars Blog. Andrew, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. And look, congratulations on the 250 and also uh, not just to you, but to, to the rest of the crew who keep things entertaining as well. So I uh, keep up the good work. Yeah, it's entirely down to them, but thank you for that. All right, we're going to sell you some lingerie and come back with the C-Team after this. Guys, this holiday season, how about giving your wife or girlfriend something totally different, something romantic that celebrates the unique connection between you and her? I'm talking about a luxury gift service called Enclosed that delivers designer lingerie to your lady month after month. Enclosed is like a flower of the month or beer of the month, but instead of flowers, she gets surprised with ultra high-end lingerie. And this is seriously high-end stuff, the kind of quality that will really impress your lady. Enclosed was designed specifically to help guys find gifts for their wives. Enclosed is all about helping you make her happy. This fosters intimacy and closeness, and as someone who is married with a toddler, I can tell you this kind of thing is so important as a relationship grows over time. And Enclosed is effortless for you. Every month, Enclosed sends your wife or girlfriend a custom curated lingerie gift selected just for your lady, and they back the gift up with a 100% size guarantee so you never have to worry about fit. This is as easy and as satisfying as it gets. You can join more than 30,000 couples that love Enclosed, And I'll give you a little gift. Right now, you can get $35 off your enclosed gift. Just go to enclosedlingerie.com. That's enclosedlingerie.com. Enter the code ARSENAL. Can't forget that one. Enter the code ARSENAL at checkout and get $35 off any enclosed gift. Why not give your wife or girlfriend something that really reflects and deepens the connection between the two of you? Something that you would never give your mother. That's enclosedlingerie.com with the code ARSENAL for $35 off the best gift ever. Do it now. 
Okay, we've saved the worst for last, but the good news is we're well past the hour mark, which means none of you are listening anymore. So for those of you who are still listening, Mom, I love you, and I can't wait to see you for the holidays. Anyway, Paul's here. You can find him on Twitter at Pause in My Pants. Hello, Paz. Hello. Clive's here. You can find him on Twitter at Clive P-A-F-C. Hello, Clive. Uh, hello, hello. Guys, I just want to congratulate you on 250 episodes. I know we haven't all been on them for all 250, uh, much to the chagrin of the listener, but uh, I think you guys deserve a big pat on the back because you are a big part of why we are still here, certainly Tim and Scott as well, though they can't be here on this one. So I want to thank you on behalf of whoever else might be interested in thanking you. So thank you. Very good. Yes, yes, I do deserve a big pat on the back. <laughs> Clive? As, as, do, as do you, Elliot. I must say, you know, it doesn't work without you, son. I mean, I Keep appreciate up. that. I, you know, I've read the comments section and uh, I have thoughts, but it's okay. Um, <laughs> hey, give us a five-star review, right? Nasty things about me in the comments. Totally cool. Anyway, let's do this. Let's give third of season awards. And uh, Paul, I'll start with you. We're about a third of the season in, and since when have we ever relied on scientific accuracy for anything? So let's do it. Let's say, what has been your favorite performance of the season so far? Oh, well, that's easy. But before we get to that, I just want to say you're a rotten, <laughs> jammy bastard. Is that to me or Clive, or both? To you. Okay, good. Perfect. Okay, moving I on. Know what you're, no, hey. I, wanna, I know what you're doing with this podcast. You got feckin' James and feckin' Andrew on. You got somebody who's actually funny on it, mm-hmm. and somebody who's actually Irish. Yeah. Yeah, you've been, I know you've what been you're replaced. Doing. The, the good yeah. news, though, Paul, is they wouldn't possibly ever come back on the podcast. So, you know, <laughs> the rest of the episodes sure. are yours. By the way, don't forget, I've also got Amy Lawrence, who is actually uh, insightful and intelligent. Knowledgeable. So, yeah, yeah, I know. That, it's, it's a crisis for all that, of us, frankly. That one's at you, Clive. Yeah, but but yeah, but her vo- her voice is not yours, Clive. So you, you yeah, know, for, she's, for the, she's she's got she's got a good voice. She's she doesn't have the baritone, my man. She does not have the James White. Um, all right, look, we said we were going to do twenty twenty five minutes. We're already trending towards an hour. So, uh, yeah, Paul, favorite favorite performance of the season so far? Liverpool. It was easy. Okay, very very easy. We quick, just quick summary of why. Well, because it was real opposition. Maybe it wasn't the best Liverpool we'll see, and maybe we had the advantage of it being at home. And maybe even then we gave them plenty of chances and maybe it was a game that suited us in that they they came at us uh, to a large degree. But to play against a top team uh, who can battle you in midfield, who had three midfield good midfielders um, and to dominate the midfield and to impose our impersonality, our personality on them for most of the game, um, you know, what beyond the result. Uh, had we won or even had we lost, I would have had to had, have had the maturity to remind myself that was the performance I was looking for. So it's easy for me. Paul, what's, uh, th- you are Paul. Yeah. This is just like every other episode, me screwing well, up and everybody Clive, else. Coming. Would you like to be me for one question? Not not yeah. even for half a question. Clive, <laughs> what was your favorite performance? Well, I would say Liverpool, but I'm going to be different for content, right? So Hashtag. I think, I think uh, Fulham, funny enough, uh, I think, Leading into the Fulham game, we were we were on form, but that one I was always concerned about. No one else was at the time, but I thought after the Europa League game, oh, that one worried me a little bit. And um, and we went there and played very very well. And I thought the belief went up since that game, our sort of offensive belief. And I just think well, I started to believe a lot more in what we were doing. And and it was a day when you know people were singing nice things about we've got our Arsenal back and all the rest of it. And I just thought. Yeah, that's, that seemed like the day we walked into the light. Um, obviously, from a performance perspective and an opposition perspective, Liverpool was the one where I think we took another step forward in belief because now we believe that we can maybe battle with these top six teams and really, and really perform. So, yep. yeah, for me, Fulham, 
is the one that really started to get me thinking. Mine was Carabagaway. Uh, okay, so Paul, what was your favorite goal of the season? Hey, there's only two uh, options, so pick one yeah, of yeah. the two. <laughs> yeah, I think it was the one that came. Oh, so it is really close for the two of them. I think the Ramsey finish is the little better, and that's why I got the award. But I think the you can't the, pick both. You leave Clive with nothing, so you're picking that <laughs> one. Clive, what's, what what no, was your favorite uh, goal of the season? No. Okay, <laughs> Clive. Um, the 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 one that wasn't Ramsey. <laughs> okay. The, the, oh, the Obama angle. I'm only I'm only doing that to wind you up, Elliot. But yeah, the Obama angle for me yeah. <laughs> on the night when Ozil did his um uh, earned his money, right? So that was the one. And so uh, that that whole game was just beautiful. Mine was Emil Smith Rose scuffed finish. Um, okay. What, Paul, would you say was Unai Emery's best trick of the season? Thing he's done this season, move, decision, uh, lineup, something that you would point to and say, that was a high point for me of his early managerial reign, coaching reign. Mm, mm, mm. Well, I've had a little chance to reflect on myself over the interval. I've come to the conclusion I'm a lousy judge of coaching and tactics and coaches. (laughs) I consider myself... Do you want to know when like, I came you know, to that conclusion? <laughs> <laughs> you mean it didn't take all 250? Uh, 2.5. No, so you know like iced tea. You know when you're watching, uh, what is it, Law and Order SVU, and he's like, he's like really upset about like some, some pervert or some, some uh, pedophile. And like, but he, he has absolutely fucking no clue who who the culprit is or who the perpetrator. That's me when it comes to coaching and football. And so I don't feel right about judging Unai Emery. But on the positive side, I guess we're getting to be positive here. So, you know, what what's the harm if I'm wrong? Um, I'd go with, uh, I like his substitutions and the fact <laughs> that he makes some and that they happen at halftime, but that he manages to convey that without it being a demotion, a, uh, you, you know, take this man away from my sight, exile him to another land. Um, it, you know, he's done it to Ganduzi a bunch of times without hurting his confidence one iota. So I think in general, his substitutions have been proactive front foot. And he, you know, he has the legitimate reason to say, listen, guys, I'm trying different shit. So you're just going to have to go with me on this. I'm going to shake things up. I'm going to make some subs. So that's it for me. No one particular moment, but cool. lots of of early subs, decisive. I don't agree with them all, but I like it. Clive, what's your favorite Unai Emery move this season? I think the way he's made us more direct. So we, we've all seen the, the extra running. We can all see the stats around that. But what he's done for me was take something that all these players have done for a long time, which was pass, 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 pass to the nearest shirt, no matter where it is, just wear the team down by just keeping the ball. And all teams were doing were falling in and saying, giving us why there and saying, go on, Arsenal, cross it, because you're, you're no good at crossing it. But what, what he's doing now is he's making the pitch bigger, much more direct, and they're passing forward immediately. And that's causing, you know, different types of goals, length of the pitch goals. And I'm feeling we're not turning away from good opportunity. So you always hear me say, respect the game, respect what's been given to you and take it. And I love what we're doing now. We're playing football that just looks normal with some ab- above normal talented players. And 
that to me is great because it's just brought the basics back into play. I'd have to say, and I'm going to set humor aside, but only momentarily, I promise. I'd say his use of Genduzi because it's taken a lot of metal, a lot of courage uh, to stick with Genduzi and, I mean, start him against City at, at the start of the season. You're a new coach at a big club and everybody's going to be watching to see, do you have it? Do you have what it takes? Now, maybe it helped that he came from a you know, newly big club and wealthy club and a club that had huge expectations. But he hasn't shied away from using Ganduzi, And I think what he's done by incorporating him so early in his Arsenal career has made him feel part of the team, made him feel valued, and helped his confidence and helped develop a player that looks like he could be a superstar for us. And he did it in the flip side with Torreira. He let Torreira get the proper rest from his World Cup exertions, not have to start game one against City and be the savior for a club that has defensive issues. I think the contrasting way he integrated those two players is really noteworthy and, and really creditable and I think has resulted in the best for both players. So I feel really optimistic and positive about the way he did that. Uh, let's do this, Paul. Let's look ahead for a minute. On the 2nd of December, Arsenal host Tottenham. On the 5th of December, Arsenal visit Manchester United. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's obviously a crucial three days in our season. We will have just come back from a trip to Vorskla, which I am told is somewhere in Middle Earth. Uh, so not ideal, and hopefully not too many players making that trip. We all have different Foreskin opinions. Foreskin pullover is, is the actual correct pronunciation. Right, so anyway, pullover. give me your prediction on points you think we will take from those two games and what you consider sort of par. What do we need to get from those two games, and what do you think we'll get? Aye, aye, aye. Well, I guess it depends what the objective is. I think what we'll get from them uh, so uh, here, all right, we're going to beat Spurs and we're going to lose at United. That's what's going to happen. Yuck. And the, Yep. I mean, I'll and take beating Spurs, but can we for once beat a bad United and, and Jose no. Mourinho? Like, can't we just do that once, no. please? No. no all right, so, so what do you think we need to do? I mean, is that par for you? What, what number of points in those games is important for us to sort of stay on track to have a, a shot at top four? Uh, so we need to at least draw against both of them so that they don't get their nose any further, closer, or, or too ahead of us. But uh, Spurs been, what, three points ahead. I think we need a win and a draw if our goal is to establish in the first half of the season that we're a top four atten- contender. Now, remember, this is probably my second best theory of the week. My best theory of of the week being panned by Twitter, which was my string theory. Did you catch this? Yeah, yeah, it's about a thong, isn't it? Yeah, that <laughs> the girl ought to put on a proper pair of underpants if she doesn't want to catch her cold. That's my string theory. Clive, what do you expect from those games? And 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 I mean, both in terms of uh, points we will take and points you think we need to take. Um, I, I generally think we're going to take... At least four points from those games. Wow. I, 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 I genuinely do. I think... Um, In which way? Liverpool game. I, I don't mind. I don't mind. I think we're going to beat Spurs. There's no way that we're going to let Spurs out of, our, out of our house. right? No chance. So I think we'll take them. Um, I think we're more equipped to take them because they generally are a, a hard-running team. And now we are outrunning them. So what are they going to do? Right? So I think if we can play them in the right areas and keep... What they try to do is they try to have runners that take us back 
and have Kane fall into the gaps and take shots. I think we're we're more equipped to protect that area in front of our centre backs now, and I think we can run with them, so they can't outrun us. So I think that's going to be interesting. It's going to become a football match. I think we can outfootball them. Uh, Manchester United. I, I always want to say we're going to do well, but history says we don't. And um, so I've got to look at the history, but I see one point United and, and three points Spurs, and that's a good return for me. So you're fine with that. I think we will take maximum points in those games, six points. Um, and I think uh, we will outclass United handily. I don't think that game will be close, somewhere in the 4 0, 5 0 range. Um, oh, wow. I'm kidding about that. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we're going to go to Old Trafford and win 4 0, 5 0, although I'd take an 8 2. I think we I think we can beat both. I'm more worried about the Spurs game. I still think that intense pressing could be a problem for us. I think we saw little signs of it when we got pressed by Chelsea earlier in the season. I think we saw very little of it against Liverpool, which was surprising. But I still worry, and I think that will be a really interesting referendum on the Shaka Torreira midfield double pivot because we will really, really see, you know, does that help us confront teams that press and and how Shaka handles it in particular. So the Spurs game scares me a little on the press side. Um, the United game, you know, I watched them against City. I've watched them a lot lately. I saw that watched them against Juventus in the game they won where they were terrible at Juve. And they just are so low on intensity and so low on midfield pressure. And it's the kind of game where I hope Aubameyang does play, um, even in lieu of Lacazette, only because if Ozil gets the kind of time on the ball that they give, and Aubameyang can make his runs, they will get slaughtered. They they give such low intensity in the midfield and contest the ball so little in midfield that I, I think we have a chance to really go to Old Trafford for the first time in ages and be the driving force in the game and, and beat them. Um, you see, Elliot, yeah. i got to come back there, mate. I mean, I, what you're saying there sounds absolutely wonderful. But if you could just brief for a second, close your eyes, and tell me a game where Ozil played well in the northwest of England. Tell me a game where he went to City or United or Liverpool and did exactly what you're saying. You know, well, so he hasn't played I, in, a, in a bunch of them. But yeah, <laughs> that, that doesn't help. I, I try, I, what you're saying is absolutely is, is, is perfect. But in the end, I think we need to have a sense of reality, right? And I, and this is maybe the day for three of them in midfield. You know, with Guendouzi and and Shaka and Torreira, and really dominate them. But you know what, Clive? They they just don't contest midfield. It's bizarre. Like they don't contest at all. Like Pogba doesn't contest the midfield at all. They're not playing Herrera. Like, they they have no intensity in that part of the pitch, especially, weirdly, the attacking third. Like, if you have the ball at the edge of the attacking third, they're giving you five, six yards. And that is a recipe to get absolutely slaughtered by Mesut Ozil. If there's one but, thing Mesut Ozil can thrive on, it's low low pressure at the edge of the, the final third. He'll destroy you. Yeah, again, I can't argue with that. You're absolutely right. But I think the way to beat them is to take their personality away. And the way to do that is to control the area of the pitch, the middle area of the pitch, and move the ball with intensity going forward. If we do that, I think we start to shake their confidence in their back line. I think their weakness is their back line, and we tend to play laterally across midfield. If we can drive forward from their midfield areas and really make them defend their spaces around their box, I think the crowd will get onto them, and I think they, they could go. Manchester United are not a team that flows. 
and they are a team of moments and they will create moments if we allow them to so i think it's important we take the ball away from them and make them feel edgy and i and i just see a more intense set of players being able to do that rather than a and those will remember that Manchester United are based on their physicality and their size. And I think if we can take that away, take the ball away, and work and fight with them, I think we still have a great chance. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that. Paul, do you want to come back on that since this is kind of an interesting topic and we finally settled on one? Do you, do you have any follow-up <laughs> thoughts on that? Uh, no, I think Clive's ultimately right. Uh, it's a big game if Ozil starts for him to to. Uh, put his impression on it on a game up north on a gay game at uh, against Manchester United against Jose Mourinho who knows him like the back of his hand um, and so I, I think it's a really interesting battle um, I think ultimately we might be slightly doomed just because I think it's a bit of a bugaboo for us whereas I don't think Spurs is I think Mentally, even though they keep having better seasons than us in the last couple of years, uh, they still, uh, I think with the crowd behind us at the Emirates, um, that'll more than offset uh, any kind of superiority they may have thought they were coming in with. So, I, uh, But I think Uni- uh, United and, Man- and uh, Old Trafford is a long way for- away from us, and it'll feel like that in the last 15 minutes of the game, which... Sure. Jose will be looking forward to. Look, they they are 16th in expected goals allowed. So, like, defensively, they're just really, really bad. And that that's what I look at. I mean, I, I wouldn't mind playing a track meet with them at Old Trafford. I know Jose isn't going to want to play that way. The thing that scares me is, look, I think Jose is going to approach it like the coward he is. I think he's going to sit back and look to counter and feel that long balls into space and, you know, Lukaku muscling... Uh, you know, muscling, out-muscling Mustafi or holding or, or Socrates is, is the way for him to play. And that may work for them. The one thing we can't do is let them score first because, you know, Jose is the master of ho- holding on to something. And we saw even in the game at the Emirates uh, a couple seasons ago where we should have won, we battered them, but they had a goal early. Once they have something to hold on to, they're a totally different proposition. So I think that's the key is just don't, don't let them get their nose in front. But their defense is nothing to worry about. Uh, Clive, final thought on that? Yeah, the big key is, you know what, mate? We've got two forwards. Uh, we've got three forwards. One's got a, a long-term injury. One had to pull out the France squad with a mystery injury. And we've got another one that's fit, that's having a little bit of a struggle. So the key for me is... Well, he pulled out keep, of international duty too, by the way. Okay, so the key for me is keeping them two boys healthy because we need them to be firing for that month of December. And we're going to have to manage the minute. So there's going to be games. We're going to play with one of them. So our... Our expected danger index, I think it's going to be a little bit lower and we are going to be hugely reliant on two players to really hit form, in particular for me, and maybe three, Iwobi, Ozil and Mkhitaryan, because two of them will be playing every single game, every single game, and they need to perform a, a role of a wide striker and really have some end product because we cannot expect Lacazette and Aubameyang to play from the start every single game continuously. And I think that's where we need to find something. We need to find a spark in those wide forward areas. So Iwobi's had some sparks before, Mkhitaryan slightly less so, but we need them two to get hot, really hot for the month of December. Last two questions, quick ones. Clive, I'll stay with you for this one just real quick. January, you expect us to do anything? 
And if so, what? Yeah, I do. And, I've, and I don't understand why people are not thinking that we're going to do something, right? Because so, we're skint? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't <laughs> nah, see it. we're not. Uh, I, I, I honestly believe we're going to do quite a bit. You know, I'm talking maybe two, three players, and there could be some player movement as well, people going out, you know. So I, I think El Nenny could potentially go out, right? So I think one could Thanks come for reminding me he's still here. <laughs> yeah. So one could come into the centre midfield. Potentially, potentially, I think there's going to be a, a forward coming. There has to be. You've got to think about this. We've got a lot riding on this. Right, a lot riding on it, and we have two forwards, and we have one child who's not ready to play. So that's not enough, right? That's not enough. You need three to four forwards, and we've got two, right? And so we need to fix that. So I think they're going to have to find some money. Would you recall Reese Nelson? No, I, 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 I sort of wanted to, and I've, I've, sw- I've gone back on this. Um, I wanted to, but. I think he's probably better for him Agreed. to stay where he is for for a year. Totally agree. But um, I think it would be would be wrong for us to just upset the groove he's in. Let him continue what he's doing. But yeah, you know, fucking travesty if we brought him back. It'd be turning our problems into his, and he'd be shit. <laughs> where he's <laughs> where he's doing great. Leave the fucker alone. That's my vote. Leave yeah, him alone. Let's get Mikatarian and Ozil yeah. to do what they should be doing earn their half million pound a week between them, right? Let them sort themselves out and start delivering. So I'd work on that. I would definitely think about another forward. And there's a lot of talk about that Nicolas Pepe at Lille. Uh, that's one of my, that's my favourite. I would love them to to push the button on that. And if it costs you another five or ten million, push the button on it. The guy's got all the personality we need. He will change the dynamics of the club gives a massive lift. He's a real stand-up, dribbling, wide forward who will end up being a Van Persie-style centre forward in time. And when Aubameyang is 31, then that player could be the, the flagship of our club. So that's what I would do. I don't matter how much it costs. I think it's important that we have the momentum of scoring goals, the danger of scoring goals in the latter half of the season. If we lose that, we start to focus on other areas. And we all know... We've got issues at fullback and centre back, right? To be resolved. So we need to focus at the top end of the pitch and keep that firepower going. Paul, what about you? Do you see us doing anything? And if so, what? Yeah. Um, for, if for no other reason that it's it's a truism that uh, Emery has three windows kind of to to work his magic and to change the profile of the team and to make sure he has the players he needs. And you can't leave all of that back-ended. He needs he needs them earlier rather than later, right? Uh, the third window should be to fix things that haven't been already fixed. So they've got to make a move or two in each window. And yeah, January is the tougher window, but they can't, they can't take a pass. So uh, I think uh, Clive's right, even if that means uh, flogging a player or two, to make the space in the cap room. Also, I don't buy that we don't have the salary cap or that we don't have the readies for it. Um, we still have cash, even if we're uh, on an annualized basis. We, we need player sales to, to maintain our level. It would help but a lot we, if we managed to move Ramsey in January. That would help yep. a lot. Because yep. then you can really, you, you replace his salary, and even if you get some transfer fee, even if it's nominal, $20 million, $15 million, it, it does yep. open, open up the opportunity to bring someone in. 
Yep, stick a fork in it and uh, make a decision on Ramsey and look to the future. Uh, much as I love the guy, if that's the way it's going, then let's put our money into changing the profile of the squad and getting Emery's players in in the first window, not the third. The third window is kind of last stop saloon. So I think we've got to do something early. And the, yeah. the view that Kroenke won't spend the money, I think, has been historically correct. There's talk about the fact that Yuzmanov's now gone, so he doesn't need to share the pie. In fact, he's making his heart, his life harder by increasing the value of the club because that's only more and harder to get Yuzmanov out of there and for more expensive. But the other thing is the Super League brings into perspective that there's no... Uh, that the only uh, place Cronky would want to be is at the big table with the big guys, and you don't do that coming sixth every year. So, um, yeah. it, it, for once, it's not. It's, we're not looking at a twenty-year, thirty-year window where he can say, "Hey, what? K sera sera." We we've got a window. Whatever happens over the next few years, that Cronky has to have his team as one of the players. We can't come sixth. We can't come fifth each year. So he's he will push the boat out to some degree. That's my prediction. And American leagues and American teams and American franchises are different. Yeah. Given the given the Premier League model and this European model, uh, we've got to be a player, which means we got to be top four. He'll he'll put money in there somewhere. From your lips to his wallet. Let's leave it there. That's yep. plenty. We've had a wonderful episode, and we thank everybody for listening, all the special guests that joined us, and especially you, Paul, at Posing My Pants on Twitter. Thank you. Woohoo! Clive's on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I am Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. And once again, from the absolute bottom of my heart, um, which here, you know, here. is the best part of my heart, I assure you, I want to genuinely wholeheartedly thank you thank you thank you for listening thank you for signing up at patreon thank you for being with us for 250 episodes and we certainly hope you'll be with us for at least one more uh, another 250 we'll see but at least one more stick it out with us we love you here, we here. appreciate you and we will talk to you again after arsenal 10 Bournemouth nil. No.